I love that tradition. <clears throat> so we are starting a new series this morning. And I'm excited about this series. Um, I've been looking forward to this for several weeks and all the kind of commotion with the different location stuff has, uh, has been you know, making me anxious to, to get started. Um, but uh, if you've noticed, we have already started getting into the series as small groups, which we'll talk about a little bit more in the announcement section. But uh, there are study guides on the website for this series. When I put up the graphics for this series on Facebook, at least one of my Facebook friends had the courage to private message me and say, I think you spelled that wrong. <laughs> but now I finally get a chance to explain why it is seemingly misspelled. And that's because this word is not, is not the typical radical that we think of. This is a, uh, a term from botany. And in botany, a radical is the part of a plant that becomes the primary root, which is such an apt metaphor for where we're at as a church. We, as you know, are in a refresh season as a church. Uh, this church has uh, miraculously and thank God survived a season uh, without, a, without a pastor and we've come back together, we've regrouped and we are now in a season of refocusing, refocusing on our vision, our mission, our values, who we are as a church and, and what we're called to do. So. We're asking the question, what does it really mean to be a community of misfits on a mission, finding identity in Jesus? Over the summer, we, we were exploring that question by looking through the book of Acts, which is a fantastic text for that question. Because the book of Acts is where we see the story of the development of the church. It's a story of the apostles obeying Jesus by going into all the world and making disciples of all nations. And it's also important because it's the context of most of the New Testament. Most of the New Testament are these letters written to churches that were planted in the book of Acts. So it's the backdrop of all of that, uh, of that teaching. And so we're going to spend some time focusing in on one of those letters. One of those letters written uh, by the Apostle Paul that we call Ephesians. And Ephesians is a unique letter among these letters. It is unlike some of the other letters, which really focus in on the, the challenges in a local congregation and address some of the local leaders. But this one doesn't. Ephesians is sort of like a 10,000-foot view of all the teachings about the gospel, all the teachings about uh, what Paul is developing as Christian theology for the first time. And it's probably written... Uh, for a more broad circulation among churches. So it's more general, less specific. It's for circulation among all the churches in a province of, Ro of the Roman Empire called Asia, modern-day Turkey. But I think that uh, for our purposes, this book is important because it reads like a misfit manifesto. It really captures the heart of what it means to be this new thing that we call the church. What it means to be a community of misfits on a mission, finding identity in Jesus. So it's going to be our text for the next several weeks. But before we dive into chapter one, kind of the deep end, chapter one of Ephesians, we're going to do a little bit of pre uh, preparation this week. We're going to look at 
the setting, the, back, the background of that letter in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 19 is where Paul uh, spends time in Ephesus planting the church there. So this week, I want to talk about uh, the way that we see the way of Jesus in Ephesus disturbing the peace. I'm calling this message the disturbing way of Jesus. Before we uh, look at chapter 19 of Acts, would you, would you pray with me? Let's pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Holy God, word made flesh, spirit of truth. Let us come to this word today open to being surprised. Silence our agendas, banish our assumptions, cast out our casual detachment, confound our expectations, clear the cobwebs from our spiritual ears, penetrate the corners of our hearts with this word. We know that you can, we pray that you will, and we wait in eager expectation. And all God's people said, amen. Okay, so we're gonna look at three passages in this chapter this morning. The first passage begins in chapter, uh, begins in verse eight. So let's read verse eight. You could follow along if you have a, a translation of the Bible yourself. Some of you may have brought one, or you might have one on your smart device. Otherwise, I put it on the screen for your convenience. So, starting in verse 8. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So as you read through the book of Acts, one of the things that becomes clear is that Paul has a very specific missionary strategy. He always does the first, the first thing he does when he gets to a new city is he always goes to the Jewish community, the synagogue. And he proclaims there the good news that the Jewish Messiah has arrived, has come. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And now he has been crucified, raised from the dead, and reigns as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And some Jews are often persuaded, and they begin to follow uh, Jesus and form a church there. And, and inevitably, some Jews do not believe. And so they reject the gospel that Paul preaches. For, for one thing, for one reason why this might be the case is that in the first century, the expectation of a Jewish Messiah was very different than ours today. When we think of a Jewish Messiah, we think of, we think of Jesus who, who saves us and liberates us uh, in all different kinds of dimensions of our lives. But in the first century, there was a very specific way they were looking for a Messiah to liberate them, and that was politically and militarily. In fact, most first century Jews were thinking of, when they thought of the Messiah, they were thinking of this guy. Judah the Hammer Maccabee, which I always say, I like to say, sounds like a wrestling name, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Judah the Hammer Maccabee. For a time, Judah led a revolt against the, the Greeks who were over, uh, ruling over the Jews, and he was successful. He succeeded, and for a brief moment, there was an independent Jewish state. 
And if you had lived at that time and you had been expecting a Messiah, you would have said the Messiah came. The Messiah has liberated us. The kingdom of God has arrived. But of course, that was short-lived. And then it was over. No one was expecting the Messiah to be crucified. Least of all, Saul of Tarsus. And so, one of the reasons that the Jewish community in Ephesus may have rejected Paul's gospel is that they may have said, a crucified Messiah is an oxymoron. That, that's not how it's supposed to happen. But I think there's a clue in this passage that tells us another reason why they may have rejected the gospel. And that's in verse 10. Verse 10 says, with a bit of hyperbole, that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And this reminds us of something about the gospel that Paul preaches. The gospel that Paul preaches is that the Jewish Messiah is not just the Messiah for Jewish people, but is the Lord of all nations, including the Gentiles. Now that's a message that will get you maligned in the first century. A message that brings together people of different cultural backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds, people who were divided, people who saw each other as uh, unclean or as superstitious and whatever else. We're going to see later in this series, particularly in chapter 2 of Ephesians, that the gospel that Paul preaches is a radical message of equality and unity between Jews and Gentiles. Remember this passage from chapter 2? For Christ himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile them both to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. So this was probably why the Jewish community maligned the way of Jesus in Ephesus. It's because Paul was preaching this radical message of unity and equality among these different groups. Now, here's a sad fact. 50 years ago, Dr. King said that the 11 o'clock hour on Sunday is the most segregated hour of the week. And do you know what? It still is. It still is. How sad is that? It's sad that in a lot of churches, we pay lip service to this idea of equality and unity among all people groups, all ethnic groups, but we don't often show it in our churches. Our churches don't often look like this. This is a unique kind of experience for a lot of people in America. And some churches boldly malign this sort of message. Just this week, I've heard people say that seeking racial justice is a distraction from the gospel. Yeah. That is a common sentiment in the United States, in the church, in America. When we ask ourselves, as Roots Covenant Church, what does it mean to be a community of misfits on a mission, finding identity in Jesus? One of the answers to that question is, is to proclaim and demonstrate the good news that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah and the Lord of all nations. 
One of the answers to that question is that we are to intentionally form a multi-ethnic family. That's what that means. It's an important part of what we're called to do and who we're called to be. But we shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking that that's going to be unchallenged. It is going to be challenged. The powers that be in a society are threatened by a community that disturbs the status quo. Especially when that society exists by keeping people divided. Listen to this, this is, this is important. Equality and unity disturbs the status quo of any society built on oppression and division. That's gonna be a very disturbing community because it's gonna upset the apple cart. It's gonna push back against the way things are supposed to be. In first century Ephesus, just as it is in the United States today, there is a status quo that is disturbed when a community of people begin to embody equality and unity, who are different from one another. And as we, Roots Covenant Church, continue to embody that reality, we will be a disturbance. We should expect that we will receive pushback. But this doesn't happen by accident. This multi-ethnic family that we are forming together doesn't happen easily or by accident. We are going to have to be intentional. We're gonna to have to commit to learn about one another. Really get to know one another and the things that make us different and then appreciate our different perspectives. Sounds easy, doesn't it? It's not. It's not easy when a society is built on division. And we're gonna to have to learn how to celebrate the God-infused aspects of our cultures. There's a God imprint on each one of our cultures. And we have to celebrate that and learn to love that about one another. I've said this before and I'll say it again. You guys are gonna get sick of hearing this, but multi-ethnic community is the instapot of Christian discipleship. <laughs> you haven't heard that yet? That's, that's one of my favorite analogies. I give, I give Juice a lot of credit. It turns up the heat and it applies the pressure. But there's a thing about multi-ethnic community that you don't get anywhere else. And that's this, that we get to see the multifaceted, many-colored wisdom of God like nobody else. If you're in a homogenous environment, you don't get to see all the beautiful ways that God expresses God's self in a community. We do. And it also increases our our discipleship muscles. It's like a gymnasium for our discipleship muscles. So we get to learn how to love one another across those divisions in the world. So the way of Jesus disturbs our dividing walls. The way of Jesus disturbs our walls of hostility. But it also disturbs our desires to co-opt God into our agenda. The way of Jesus disturbs our desire to co-opt religious power, to put a God stamp on what we want to do. Ephesus was a place of power. One of the things Ephesus was famous for was their occult magic practitioners. You could call them sorcerers, magicians, whatever. But they had a lot of these guys. And they used the, the, uh, the trade routes 
that would pass through Ephesus to gain more knowledge about the different gods and their powers. And they would try to apply those new gods and their new powers to their magic. So, that's what's going on in this second passage that we're going to look at in chapter 19, starting in verse 14. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had, been, who had the evil spirit jumped up and overpowered them and gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. That's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. <laughs> I mean, isn't that just Sunday school? That's the best, right? That picture, oh, it's never going to leave you. <laughs> gave them such a beating, they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Okay, so one of the things that we must guard ourselves against is attaching the name of Jesus in a cheap way to gain power. That's what these folks are doing. That's what the sons of Sceva. Now, a simple example of this is what's been called the Jesus Juke. How many of you know what the Jesus Juke is? Really? Oh, you do. Okay. Oh, I get to introduce a lot of you to the Jesus Juke. I'm excited. Um, John Acuff started a blog called Stuff Christians Like. And he wrote a post called, uh, about this phenomenon called the Jesus Juke. Here's what he said. Like a football player juking you at the last second and going a different direction, the Jesus Juke is when someone takes what is clearly a joke-filled conversation and completely reverses direction into something serious and boring. That's the Jesus Juke. So here's an example. Acuff spots a guy, a huge guy at the airport doing push-ups. And he, and he tweets about this on Twitter, and somebody replies, Imagine if we were that dedicated to our faith, family, and finances. <laughs> wah. Can't you hear the, can you hear the sound, the sad uh, sound of the, of the trumpet? Wah, wah. It's like, oh man. Here's another one. Um, John Acuff went to see uh, Conan O'Brien live, and he, he uh, commented about how big the crowd was, and somebody replied, if we held a concert for Jesus and gave away free tickets, nobody would come. <laughs> These are funny examples of the Jesus juke, but there's another kind of Jesus juke that is a little bit more insidious, maybe a lot more insidious. Uh, it's when we try to attach Jesus to our particular political ideologies. That's a form of Jesus juke, right? The one I've heard lately is Jesus would be a capitalist, or Jesus would be a socialist. No, no, it wouldn't be either of those things. Those things weren't around in the first century, just so you know, just for a history lesson, they did not exist. Um, we see a lot of this in the United States. A lot of Christians in the United States want to slap a God stamp or a Jesus stamp on their particular opinions about politics without remembering that they are that, opinions. They're opinions. We all have them. They're like belly buttons. <laughs> we have to remember that people who love God can disagree on politics and can see things from different perspectives. Remember what I said earlier? Respecting other people's perspectives sounds easy, 
until you get down to the nitty gritty and then you go, oh, that's what you really believe? <laughs> There's a danger in this passage that Willie James Jennings talks about that I think is really important for us to remember. Willie James Jennings is an amazing African-American professor at Yale, and he wrote a beautiful, poetic commentary on the book of Acts. He writes this. It matters very little who the evil spirit knew or did not know. What is far more important is that these would-be exorcists imagined their delivering work outside the bonds of relationship with Jesus or his servants. This is a perennial danger for those of us that wish to do serious intervention against the demonic forces of this world that oppress humanity and the creation. These sons of Sceva did in fact challenge the demonic, and they did in fact seek to free someone from its deadly grip. Yet they had not placed themselves in the space of the spirit and the life of Jesus, where touch and presence and relationships situate our actions in God's own life and turn us always toward that life so that they were wounded in their attempt to do good. It signals what is always possible for those who wish to do the good work of Jesus without constantly pressing into the life of Jesus. We too may be overcome by evil. As Roots Covenant Church, our vision is to be a new people rooted in Christ who passionately love God and purposefully seek the renewal of our city. Seeking the renewal of our city, like Paul and the other Jesus disciples in Ephesus, will inevitably lead to confrontation with the powers that be. If we seek the renewal of our city, like the sons of Sceva, Without connection to Jesus and his life and his spirit, we too might get beat up by evil. I was going to say naked and bloody, but <laughs> I just did. So. There's a danger that I'm trying to warn us about. There's a danger in being a do-gooder church. We could be a do-gooder church that isn't a worshiping community. We could seek the renewal of the city without passionately loving God, couldn't we? We could be an agency of transformation, but we'll end up like the sons of Sceva, who knew the name of Jesus and knew it had power, but didn't have any personal connection to it. And we want to avoid that. The way to avoid that is that we have to help one another cultivate real practices in our lives, rhythms in our lives that will keep us connected to God and to one another. If you're not weekly, daily, monthly, experiencing God in your life, having connection with God, having connection with one another, you could still be doing good out there in the world, but you'd be like the sons of Sceva. And eventually, one day, you'll find yourself getting beat up, and you might burn out, and you might call it quits. I have known many folks in my life who cared deeply about justice, but when the going went, got tough, they quit. Because they had no life-giving spring that was flowing through them. That's what we need. The way of Jesus is like this ever, never-ending spring of life that overflows through our lives out into the world, into our neighborhoods, to our families, to our communities. If you don't have that connection to that spring, you're just running out of gas. 
So the way of Jesus disturbs our walls of hostility. And it disturbs our desire to co-opt God's power into our agenda. But it also has a third disturbing effect. The third disturbing effect is what we're going to see in the last passage of this chapter that we're going to look at. After the gospel that Paul is preaching and demonstrating has spread, people are beginning to realize what this means. If this is true, what Paul's saying, it changes everything. It changes the entire landscape. The gospel isn't five ways to live your best life now. An addition to your life to make it a little better. The gospel isn't a ticket to heaven when you die. Like, I got mine, you got yours? That's not what the gospel is. The gospel is the royal announcement and the powerful demonstration that Jesus is the Messiah and Lord. He's been crowned, exalted, and now he's reigning. The answer to that is not, meh. The answer to that is, I will give him my full allegiance or I will live as a rebel against his kingdom. That's the answer to that. It's not, well, he might improve my life a little bit. You will bow down or you will, you will live as a rebel. So there was a guy who started to put the pieces together. He started to put two and two together and he realized what this gospel meant for him personally. His name was Demetrius. We're going to start in verse 23. At that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and practically the whole province of Asia. He says that the gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent a message to him begging him not to venture into the theater. Verse 32. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front. And they shouted instructions to him. One motioned with, uh, for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when he realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, to understand the setting of this story in Ephesus, you've got to understand one thing. The temple of Artemis was huge. The Temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, alongside things like the Great Pyramid of Giza. It was twice as big as the Parthenon in, in Athens. 
twice as big. It was enormous. And Artemis was not just worshipped in, in, in Ephesus, worshipped all throughout the Roman Empire. She was the goddess of chastity, but also the goddess of fertility and childbirth. Her temple, uh, plenty of the elders said about her temple that it was the most wonderful monument of Grecian magnificence. And the priests of Artemis were all women who ruled the show and kept the men in their place. Now, this context also, this is a side note, this context also is the context of 1 Timothy. It's a very controversial passage in 1 Timothy about women not being permitted to teach men. We have to understand that in that city, and there's a wonderful quote by N.T. Wright that you can read in the study guide this week. Uh, the women in that city, uh, 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 the priests in that city were all women. And Paul was distinguishing the way of Jesus from the cult of Artemis. So read the quote in, uh, in this week's study guide, small group guide. So back to the temple. Okay, so this temple of Artemis was, it was Ephesus' claim to fame. Demetrius was making his living from making silver shrines of the, of the temple. And many other people made their living from this. So when he puts two and two together about the gospel, he's like, this guy's going to put me out of business. That's what he's thinking. He's thinking, if this catches on, I'm going to lose my livelihood. Now, I want to pause here just to point something out. Every now and again, in the United States at least, or in the Western world, Christians begin to debate whether the gospel has any social dimension. Have you ever heard this debate? <laughs> Christians in the United States sometimes say that the gospel has nothing to do with what's called social justice, right? But it's important to note here that the idolatry of Artemis was supported by an economic system and a social system. Did you see that? The idolatry itself was propped up by this elaborate system throughout Ephesus. Idolatry is systemic. We gotta get that. If we don't get that, you, you, you won't understand the, the fullness of the gospel. The gospel confronts our idolatries and it confronts the systems that support them. So, so look at our idols, for example. We have idols. Our idols in the West, in the United States, in particular, are wealth, power, and pleasure. Those are the big three. Or, we could call them by their ancient names, Mammon, Zeus, Aphrodite. Same thing. Our society's idols of wealth, power, and pleasure, are they merely personal? Or are they propped up by systems? How is our idol of wealth propped up by systems? How is our idol of pleasure propped up? Lots of systems. What about power? Lots of systems. Idolatry is fundamentally systemic. Paul preached and embodied the way of Jesus in Ephesus, and the systems of that city were deeply threatened by it. You know that society's idols are feeling deeply threatened when a crowd of people flock into an arena and start chanting their society's slogan over and over again. Where have we seen that? Artemis wasn't just the goddess of fertility. 
Artemis was the symbol of Ephesian greatness, and she was under threat by the gospel. It's not recorded in this particular chapter, but we see in other stories in the book of Acts that Paul was actually imprisoned in Ephesus. And when I, when I read this story about the riot that happened because of Demetrius in, in Acts 19, I'm reminded of another preacher who was in jail and wrote a letter. I'm reminded of Dr. King writing from a Birmingham jail cell in 1963. He wrote these powerful words. I want you to listen to these words. These words continue to haunt me every time I hear them. Listen to these words. There was a time when the church was very powerful. It was during that period that the early Christians rejoiced when they were deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. However, wherever the early church entered a town, the power structure got disturbed and immediately sought to convict them for being disturbers of the peace, for being outside agitators. But they went on with the conviction that they were a colony of heaven and had to obey God rather than man. They were small in number, but big in commitment. They were too God intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. They brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contest. But things are different now. The contemporary church is so often a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. It has so often been the arch supporter of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's often vocal sanction of things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If the church of today does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the ancient church, it will lose its authentic reign and forfeit the loyalty of millions and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. This was written in the 20th century. I meet young people every day whose disappointment with the church has risen to outright disgust. That was written 55 years ago. And those words could not be more true today. Sisters and brothers, it's time that we heeded this prophetic call. Luke's account of Paul in Ephesus shows us that the way of Jesus disturbs our walls of hostility. It disturbs our desire to co-opt religious power. And it disturbs our idolatries and the systems that support them. May our lives be disturbed by the way of Jesus. And may we be disturbers of the peace, the false peace of the status quo in society, when it's held up by division and oppression and idolatry. May we be disturbers right here in St. Paul. May we be embodiments of that disturbing way of Jesus. Pray with me. King Jesus, 
We have heard the good news that you've been crowned, exalted, and your reign has begun. We've heard the good news that you've defeated sin, death, and the powers. We give you honor and glory that you deserve, for you alone are worthy. We pray that we pray to you because you are our Lord and our Savior. And we give you our allegiance wholly and unreservedly. May our worship not only connect us to you and one another, but may it also be a powerful, transforming force in our lives and in our communities. May we be so thoroughly formed by your way that we disturb the powers that be. May our equality and our unity disturb the oppression and division of our world. And may our contemplative practices disturb our desire to co-opt religious power. And may our proclamation of your unrivaled reign disturb all the idolatries and the systems that prop them up. We pray that our fellowship would be a glimpse of your shalom the wholeness, the justice, the right relationship, the relatedness that will one day characterize the whole world when your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. But until that day, fill us with your powerful Holy Spirit. Unite us as one family and send us out as heralds of your gospel and ambassadors of your kingdom. In the powerful name of the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we all pray. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.